fear of losing your mind has to be one of the scariest things you can ever endure. And the worry that a loved one will forget who you are or start acting in a way that is totally opposite to how they have all their lives is too much for most to bear. This week's brilliant guest, Jules Montague, is a consultant neurologist based in London. Her clinical subspecialty is young onset dementia, patients who develop memory and behavioral changes as early as their 20s. And some of her most challenging work is in the intensive care setting where she sees patients who have suffered catastrophic brain injuries. Jules' recent best-selling book, Lost and Found, Why Losing Our Memory Doesn't Mean Losing Ourselves, is profound and deeply touching, drawing on many real-life personal experiences of patients whose minds misbehave. I was fortunate enough to meet Jules in person, the first since lockdown, at one of my favourite places in London, Kenwood House, Hampstead. You or someone close to you will at some point in your lives suffer memory loss, and Jules' approach to this may well be your lifesaver. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favourite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favourite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says guests, favourite places in London. Click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening. Best wishes and keep safe. Steve. I'm delighted to have today on the podcast Jules Montague. Welcome to the podcast, Jules. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Uh, this is the first live podcast. I think we were saying before we actually went live, started recording the first live podcast I've done post-COVID lockdown. Yes. So I don't know whether you consider yourself um, a guinea pig. Guinea pig or a fantastic <laughs> experiment, hopefully. Yeah. It's or a bit of a shock to the system, isn't it? Being, it, you know. it, it is. And uh, But we're in one of my favourite places in just outside of London. Uh, I suppose we're still in London, aren't we? This is, uh, I'm being attacked by wasps, which is great. We're in the, the brew house coffee shop, or I used to call it the tea rooms at Kenwood House. And uh, you can probably hear actually the parakeets <laughs> flying over us. We've got wasps, we've got children and families, and this is a totally different experience to what I've been used to for the last few months, which has been doing recordings online. It's nice to be out, and the sun is just sort of peeking through the clouds. But hopefully we're going to get away for it, with it for the next hour or so. Exactly. So very grateful to you for being here. How have you found lockdown yourself from a personal point of view? I mean, you're, you're a neurologist and do neurologists suffer in the same way as the rest of us do? Not quite. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have to say I've been, I've, been, I've been pretty fortunate, actually. Lockdown has been good to me. I know it hasn't quite been the same for, for many, many people. Uh, as it happened, I decided to take this year off a little while ago to write a second book, uh, I didn't expect to be taking the time off during a pandemic. I have been involved in, you know, various things uh, not on the front line related to medicine, but in fact, as it happens, I'm I'm not working on the front line in the midst of a global pandemic. I think, you know, neurologists certainly are involved in some ways a little bit more than we thought before because COVID does things to the brain that we didn't realise. Um, but by and large, you, you know, many sort of senior neurologists are still working away doing the things they always did while some of the younger neurologists are on the have been dragged back to the front line. From a personal point of view, 
you know, I've been able to continue doing what I have been doing anyway, which is writing uh, as well as uh, helping out with some of the logistics of the response. But actually, I've been pretty much okay. My parents were in Spain at the time that this all kicked off. And they said, what should we do? This was in March. And I said, no, no, you're fine. Absolutely stay there. This is no big deal. You know, uh, within 24 hours, I realized that was terrible advice. And, and they're still out. They're still stuck out there. <laughs> we managed to get them oh, back. Oh, you did? Just So they time. got back on one of the last flights back to Dublin, which is where they live. Uh, so, you know, that's pretty reassuring. My brother's in Singapore, uh, where no one is leaving, you know, anytime soon. But, you know, the main thing is we've all kept healthy. We've all kept well. So I, I don't have any major complaints at the moment. It's all it's all quite jarring for all of us, I think. But beyond so what, that, so what does what has what's the evidence of what lockdown does to people's men, not just their mental well-being, but actually their neurology? What does it do to them? So there's been some suggestions. So there's lots of sort of case reports coming coming out, and I'm quite cautious to say, you know, this isn't a brain epidemic that is suddenly emerging, which is what some of the sensationalist reporting is quite want to do. Uh, but it does look like there are some neurological complications. Uh, so in other words, the uh, the brain is affected or the spinal cord is affected in some way by COVID. And it could be that there's a direct attack of the virus, as many, many viruses uh, attack the nervous system. So HIV, for example, is a classic one. Or it could be that your immune response that you mount in response to COVID causes inflammation through your nervous system. One thing that's that's clear is if you have patients in a hospital with a neurological problem anyway, for example, stroke, and you test them for COVID, chances are they're going to have COVID because they're in hospital anyway. But it does look like, for example, there are some people who are developing strokes, uh, particularly younger people, where it does seem directly related in some way to COVID. So, you know, I don't want to pretend that this is some sort of epidemic. So there's no evidence that COVID has caused the stroke, but it may have been a contributory factor to it? It looks like there's a contributory factor. In other words, there's more strokes that we're seeing, particularly in younger people who wouldn't otherwise be expected to get a stroke. So they don't have very high blood pressure or diabetes or the usual risk factors. You know, at the moment we're talking you know, we're only a few months in, aren't we? So I think yes. it's sort of premature to say that this is clearly a cause and effect. Uh, but I certainly think there's something out there. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, when this all first started back in the first sniff of it, February, March time, I, I was one of the skeptics saying this is this is just a flu. Come on, people, get a yeah. grip. What's the fuss about? But um, then I got completely wiped out by what I thought was a cold or a virus and was, was bedridden for a, a day or two. And... And now I've had been tested retrospectively and found out that I probably did have it at some point, although right. there's no way of ever knowing, although I'm, I'm, I'm clear of it now, you'll be pleased to know, yes. <laughs> having been tested again. It really is much, much worse than people ever anticipated, isn't it? And, and the effects are still being learned even today. I think so. It, you know, it all seemed very far away, mm. didn't it? Because we thought it was something like SARS or, or a virus that was certainly quite distant from us or wouldn't be extremely prevalent. And that's obviously transpired not to be the case. For me, one of the sort of hidden epidemics, so, so putting aside the virus itself, is all the people who haven't got their usual medical care during this time. Yes. So, you know, we would see people, uh, it, it's called a two-week wait system. So if someone is thought to have cancer, for example, a brain tumour, the GP says, I think this person has cancer and we see them in clinic um, within two weeks. Now, some of those appointments have continued on, but there are lots of people who, you know, perhaps thought, oh, I have this symptom, I don't really want to go to the doctor who missed their usual cardiology appointment, let's say. So I think it's, you know, seeing the ramifications of that down the line. You know, I'm still hopeful, you know, we're, we're at, at the time we're speaking, there's no vaccine, but, you know, who knows when someone listens back to this, maybe there will be. Uh, but I think there's those sort of hidden epidemics that we still have to confront and we might not know about that for, for quite some time to come, I think. Do you think there's a likelihood of what they're calling a second wave uh, in, later on in the year? 
I'm not sure, actually. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me is is the health system functions well here, I think. Um, but it's just above a certain threshold and, and it doesn't take much, you know, to, to really challenge the resources that we already have. So flu is a huge thing. I mean, most of us don't think about flu. Some of us get the vaccine and that's about it. But come winter... You know, when well, that's going to be old. a big issue, isn't it? In the winter, when people come down with regular flu, they're going to start freaking out and thinking that, you know, have I got the flu? Have yeah. I got COVID? Well, you know, what what's going on? Exactly. I think there's going to be some of that. You know, hopefully the uptake for the flu vaccine will be pretty high. So that will be helpful. Hopefully testing will be readily available, etc. So I think it's, it's you know, we the health system can handle a lot. Uh, the question is how far we're going to be pushed this Christmas, I suppose. Well, that's a bit of a sidetrack to, uh, I mean, I guess we never anticipated, or when you wrote your book, Lost and Found, you, you never anticipated COVID, or well, none of us sort of anticipated anything like this. A pand- Did you ever think there would be a pandemic in your lifetime? Was that ever on the No, on the didn't cards? even, I, I thought at most I would see a box set about a pandemic. I never yeah. really thought it would come into my life. Certainly not. I mean, I had planned uh, trips for this a second book. Um, so I'm supposed to be in Tanzania right now, and uh-huh. here we are in Kenwood House in Hampstead. Yeah. Uh, supposed to be in Mozambique. So no, certainly, no, I never saw any, you know, foresaw anything like like this but you know like everyone we've had to adapt really no it's very strange so let's talk a bit about your your grounding in uh, your your medical career how did you first get involved as a child what was your interest in it well I, I just absolutely I loved medical stuff you know I, I watched all those shows from Casualty and Holby to ER and Grey's uh-huh. Anatomy all the rest of them is it in the family at all or not particularly I had an uncle who was a GP uh, but you know I wouldn't have grown up with him he was in another country so it, it really wasn't my parents didn't particularly uh, feel strongly about me doing medicine one way or the other you know my my brother is terrified of doctors so apparently even when I used to get vaccines to, to go away to India where my family are originally from I used to really enjoy the experience even when I was three or four so there was you enjoyed the I enjoyed experience vaccines. yes okay yeah. in fact uh, my mother remembers that I used to ask for a second shot because I Did enjoyed you? it <laughs> unlike your single shot in your, exactly. co- in your coffee in my Americano <laughs> uh, so I think I always really enjoyed it um, my mother did find a little picture I'd drawn that the school teacher asked us when we were about four you know to draw a picture of what we wanted to be and one of the pictures I'd drawn was was a taxi driver and um, because I always wanted to talk to people apparently and uh, and listen to their stories which it transpires is exactly what medicine is really uh-huh. about yeah so I'm not sure you know obviously I've really enjoyed the science the biology the anatomy of it all but it's also the, the narrative side of thing the storytelling side of things so what was your route because I understand you studied at Trinity in Dublin that's right so how did you what was your progress into that? Yeah, so I did six years at Trinity College in Dublin, which is which was a fantastic six years. And uh, after that, I spent five years practicing in Ireland, uh, did a PhD there, and then moved over to the UK in, in 2009 to London um, and continued on as a, a neurologist ever since. Uh, and then, as I said, the last year has been different because I've taken time away from the front line. Um, but really, I, I just kept going as a neurologist once I discovered sort of things to do with the brain and mind I knew that was exactly where I wanted to be and I've tried to mix that with a career abroad so I also work in Mozambique every yeah, year. Tell us a doctor. bit about that how you got involved in that. Yeah I suppose I, I just you know I was always really keen to, to work abroad I'd done quite a bit of work in India already with indigenous tribes and so on and and it, and I sort of thought well I want to go somewhere where there aren't a lot of resources you know neurologists are hard to come by so I did some research and, and I found a place called Bera in Mozambique which is a port town there and found there weren't really you know the resources were tough uh, tough around there and looked into it and managed to end up going there every every year so I spend three or four weeks apart from this year of course and I work as a neurologist at the hospital and teach the medical students and so on and it's a very different setting so 
you know, the average life expectancy uh, in, in the hospital in the region is 38 years old. Um, Just as a regular yeah, person in, in, without around, any sort of Yeah, exactly. And, and in the hospital, sort of the, you know, in the wider area, the life expectancy goes up to around 50. But in the hospital, we're talking about 37, 38, where 80% of the patients have HIV and or TB. And the medical expertise there is fantastic. Uh, but, you know, resources, as I said, are very limited. And I'm getting messages at the moment about the absence of masks in the hospital and so on. So, you know, it's, it's uh, to be honest, I learn probably more there, you know, than I than I actually bring them in terms of knowledge, I must say. But uh, it is it is very fulfilling and satisfying to work somewhere where, you know, you can bring along a little neurology um, expertise that you've developed, hopefully, um, and impart that to people who are really keen because they don't have um, permanent neurologists there. So that's, you know, that's a huge highlight. And I think, as I said, I probably come back with more education to to bring to the NHS rather than the other is that way around. medical education? Is that education on a sort of human level about how you treat people? Yeah, it's, it's how you treat people. So I just go on to the wards and, and the doctors will say, we have this patient with a neurological condition, you know, whatever it is, we're not quite sure what it is. So can you have a look? And I'll examine them. I don't speak Portuguese, which is the language yes. there. So I need some help. Some of the languages are, are sort of local dialects. I don't speak those either. Um, and so we, we talk to the patients, their families, and try and figure out what's going on. And it's, you know, there's detective work involved because there are, we don't have the scans. There are no, there's no CT scanner. There's no MRI machine. Uh, there's often only four or five blood tests on a given day that are available. And HIV tests are pretty easy to come so by. So it really is detective is, work, process of elimination by asking his, history and you say analysis of blood, so that's pretty much all you can do, I guess. Yeah, it's the it's the old school stuff, really. You know, it's tapping reflexes and listening to stories. And the difference you can make, having said that, is is huge. You know, far far more so than uh, than in other situations. Uh, certainly, one of the patients I met, I remember her her family had brought her in, and and she'd had a sort of quite catastrophic stroke about ten years before, and they were a bright family. They hadn't been told too much about what a stroke entailed. Um, and I examined her and, you know, I was up front and I said, this is where she is now. These these problems that she have have been longstanding. It's unlikely they're going to get much better. In fact, they're probably going to stay the same. But they had thought that she was having a stroke every single day and that's why she was the way she was. And it's, you know, just I'm sure someone would have explained it to them, but that opportunity hadn't come along. And so the difference actually, you know, I was able to make in terms of explaining the, the very simple anatomy and biology of it was actually more satisfying than many of the very complex explanations I've given at other times during my yes. career. So is that a matter of education at that level? Yeah, or, or lack of education? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a bit of that. I suppose it's it's just having the time to have those conversations with people, which I was lucky to have. If, if you are working in a hospital where, as I said, the life expectancy is 30-something, you have to prioritise the conversations you have. You have to you know, um, put your energy in certain places. And certainly when some of these people go back to their local communities, that medical education or expertise isn't there. Uh, so, so you know, I think w one of the things I'm very aware, having said all of that, is, you know, I remember at one point I lived not too far from Edgware Road. And I thought, you know what, you don't have to go to Mozambique or India or whatever to encounter many of the same issues and to write exciting books and exciting stories because actually a lot of the same issues uh, exist within our own communities and um, but it's often seen as more exotic to write about these issues when they happen in another country yeah no for sure so are these some of the the stories that have um, assisted your process of writing your first book lost and found yeah is this, is this what pushed you in that direction I think so. I, I sort of realised the stories that doctors often think are everyday bread and butter probably have a lot to say about who those people are, but who we are ourselves, really. 
and the book came around because I was thinking about this idea of identity and who we are when we're not ourselves. And there was a few patient stories that really struck me, but one of them was actually a patient in a, a hospital in London and her name was Carol. And she had known knives and she'd known guns, so she was quite a character around the East End of London and had a, a very impressive criminal history and um, plenty of ASBOs or antisocial behaviour uh, orders. And she suffered a head injury, came into hospital and had a brain hemorrhage. And she was in a pretty bad way, as you might expect. And uh, nonetheless, she recovered bit by bit, but she still thought it was, you know, Cindy Lauper was number one and she her, her memory and, you know, had gone back a few years. But over time, she recovered a little bit and a social worker came in to see her one day and said, Carol seems like a lovely person. She seems much nicer than she used to be. You know, she used to be very violent and now she's very friendly. And, you know, this, maybe this brain injury has, has helped her a little bit. And, of course, the question really is, you know, is Carol a nicer person now because she's seen the error of her ways or is it the brain injury? Because her brain injury was at the front of her brain um, and that can change your personality. So maybe she was actually a nicer person because of this brain injury rather than anything else. And actually over subsequent weeks, um, she became quite violent on the ward and she stole a scissors and she tried to stab one of the nurses and some of her, you know, her her classic racist phrases began to, to re-emerge once again. And it was, you know, it was, it was uh, apart from being a tricky case uh, in, in terms of medical management, it was really one of those cases that makes you think about who we are when we're not ourselves and do we see the real person um, once And what do you mean by, by not ourselves? Do you, you mean when we've suffered tra traumatic brain injury or we have some medical condition that inhibits or, you know, damages the brain function? Yeah, for better or for worse, I suppose. So, for example, some people when they take LSD, which affects the pathways of the brain, will say they're more creative or very calm, polite, nice people sleepwalk and they commit, as I outline in the book, violent murders, you know, and they would say, well, that's not my personality at all. Or someone who has uh, dementia, for example, um, their personality changes in quite a profound way. So I suppose it's all the different brain changes, whether it's dementia or sleepwalking or taking LSD, how that changes us um, in terms of who we are, but also does it really reflect who we really are? So was Carol, who had the brain injury and became a nicer person, was that really her? Or should she still be prosecuted for the crimes that she committed when she was violent in the East End of London yes. 10 days before? Yeah, I suppose that's more of a legal sort of argument as to who we, who we are and legal responsibility. But, I mean, how, how do we determine what, what our true personality is? Is it before the injury, before the damage to the brain? Is that who we are? Is it afterwards or is it a combination of all of those? I think facets? it's probably a combination of all of them. And, you know, I think one of the issues was, was that I had difficulty answering that question as a doctor. So uh, a friend of mine, and, and I outline her story in the book, her, her mother had essentially become a nicer person after she, she developed a brain injury. So, so her mother had been quite remote and indifferent um, and then developed a brain tumour and became more loving, really, and, and better able to express her emotions. And my friend said, you know, is this my mother, really, or is it her tumour? And again, it was the same sort of conflict of, well, hang on a second, I didn't learn how to answer these questions in medical school. So I think it really does depend on the person and the situation, as hopefully the various cases I talk about or write about in the book exemplify. I think there's a bit of both. I think often we see people's real personality, um, 
But not necessarily always so. I mean, think about it. If you've um, had a few drinks too many and your personality changes, and I don't know, does it, Steve? I oh, I fall asleep, typically. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose my personality does change quite dramatically. <laughs> um, so there are people who will say, you know, I definitely had a, a, a friend and she. I remember she, I think she had vodka for the first time uh-huh. as a new drink and um, she became quite aggressive and it was a real shock because, yes. you know, she was never like that on, on wine or rum that I had remembered. So, so I, yeah, I think I think it depends on the person, the situation and and. and as as I found out when I when I sort of looked at research for the book, it also depends on what part of your brain is affected, because not all brain you know brain disorders affect the same part of the brain in the same way. Yeah, well, it's an utterly fascinating book, and I should give, give it a, we'll give it several shout outs throughout the course of the podcast. But it's called Lost and Found: Why Losing Our Memories Doesn't Mean Losing Ourselves. So you specifically t- talk about memories in the sub subheader, if you like. Is there, was there a reason for that? Because it's not always about memory, is it? Yeah, so we, uh, I sort of deal with everything. I mean, a, yeah. a lot of stuff comes back to memory, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and, and probably at events I've done, that's the most common question that people have asked. And what's amazing is you write a book of 10 chapters or so, um, and at literary festivals and so on, the main question I get asked is, what does it mean if I lose my keys or I can't find my yeah, yeah, phone? Yeah, yeah. Because I think we're utterly, you know, uh, and, the, and the answer is you, you shouldn't really worry about those things oh, unless, you don't know, <laughs> unless you don't know how to use your phone. I haven't got a clue where I parked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to answer that question in case people are thinking about it, yeah. um, usually it's not a concern if you uh, can't frequently remember where you keep your keys. Okay. Um, but if you don't know what your keys are for in the first place, that's a different right. journey. Okay. So let me put it this way. Um, Your opening um, section of the book is all about memory. And a lot of it is obviously about Alzheimer's and and, and dementia. Now, I'm going straight from here to see my 97-year-old aunt. I won't won't name check her in case any other. And we are sort of caring for her. She lives alone. uh, And she is, in my opinion, my non-medical life experience opinion, clearly starting the onset of dementia at 97 it's not a not a great surprise i would have thought but up until very recently she was bright as a button but now repeats the same questions she will phone 10 times a day have i just phoned you she'll phone asking for somebody else you know are you coming over this afternoon when are you moving they're the same questions have i just asked you that question oh i'm sorry over and over and over again now to the non-medically trained person like me alzheimer's dementia i don't know but is that something we we We've all got waiting for us if we're 97 years old? Not inevitably, but, but if, uh, you know, as you've identified, the risk of dementia very much exponentially increases with age. Um, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, so sometimes the terms are used anonymous, uh, synonymously, I should say, and Alzheimer's certainly is, is one form of dementia that increases with age, but it's not inevitable. Um, and I think, you know, you've talked about your non-medical opinion, but actually it holds as much weight as a medical one, because what you've done is you've compared your aunt to how she was before exactly, and now. Exactly, yes. Um, and we all have people who are more absent-minded for their whole lives or people who tend to talk about the same thing over and over. But I think what's crystal clear with your aunt is you've seen a progression, you've seen a change, and that's what makes the difference, really. Fairly rapid. And also, whether from your medical point of view, I'm not asking you to diagnose or anything, but she had major surgery uh, last year, I think it was. And up until that point, she seemed to be fine. And from that moment on, coming out of hospital, she seems to, well, we use this expression, have gone down, don't we? She seems to have gone down men- mentally. So, I mean, is there any relationship between operate? My mum always says, once you've had a general anaesthetic, 
and your, your elderly, there's a very good chance you're going to start losing your marbles. <laughs> well, I think, you know... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how scientifically proven that is. <laughs> well, I think mothers often know what they're talking about, but not as frequently as they think they do. Um, you hear that, mother? <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. Uh, I, I do think, you know, there's, there's something in it, and it's, it's certainly a very kind of common anecdotal experience that we hear of, that, you know, he went into hospital, he was fine before that. Um, often that's simply because people find a specific time point or a temporal relationship. Um, but there is some work being done to try and answer those questions that people talk about. So if someone is very unwell for a prolonged amount of time in hospital, and it would have to be seriously unwell, we're not talking about getting a routine hip replacement. Um, but if, for example, you're in intensive care, uh, sometimes your oxygen levels, for example, are affected, oxygen levels to the brain over time. Uh, if you have prolonged infections and so on, sometimes uh, you can get an exacerbation. So it could have been that someone was on en route to getting a dementia of some form anyway, but perhaps there was some acceleration and there's lots of research around that. So, you know, your mother actually could know what she was talking about. So the issue of memory, whether it's dementia or brought on by some other sort of catastrophic injury, perhaps, how does that affect, in your view, who we are and our personality? Is that because we can't remember our stories as to who we are and our characteristics and our traits? And whereas we, as the outsider looking in at that person who's suffering, we, we, we can recall, we, we have a view of who that person should be, in our view, and where they should be in their, their, their life. I think sort of telling our own story, our own autobiography is, you know, crucial to who we are. And if you imagine if someone has, let's say, advanced dementia or memory loss from a stroke, for example, if you can imagine they're walking through their hallway and there's framed pictures on the wall of their family, but essentially those pictures are absent. You know, it's almost like the frames are empty because they can't identify the people in, in the frames. And then they walk in and you give them a notebook and a, a fountain pen to write their own story. And they have great difficulty doing that. Uh, and you can see how, you know, your story is often seen as the essence of you. But I suppose I would caveat that by saying it's not all you know, it's not all that we are. There are other aspects to who we are, including our personalities, for example, and how we interact with people. Uh, one of my concerns, I suppose, is even though I, I certainly feel memory is, is crucial to who we are, is that the medical model of memory talks about inability and invisibility. So if you can't remember things, if you can't tell your story, well, who are you? You know, and that's how we really diagnose dementia. It's, it's, it's all about the things that you can't do or the stories that you can't tell. But after I wrote the book, I found I got lots of messages from people saying, you know, I see what you're writing about. Because actually, for example, my mother or my father, even though they do have very significant dementia, um, they're still in there. You know, there are still days, there are still moments where there is something of them in there. And I think that's crucial. I also am aware that you will probably have some listeners who have had someone in their life with profound dementia who will say, well, they completely change, particularly in the later stages. So I don't want to undermine that experience. But I will say, all I can say really is that the overwhelmingly, uh, the correspondence I got was that, that, that throughout much of the illness, they felt that there was the person that they loved was still there in some way, even though they weren't able to impart the same memories in the way they did before, um, even though their stories often had repetition and the, you know, the grammar was out and the syntax was out. There was something of the person they still loved there. So I suppose I would, you know, caveat, yes, memory is incredibly important. I say that as a brain doctor, but it's not everything. Mm -hmm. I guess in some respects, it's harder for the person, the, 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 the family members looking in at the, uh, the person suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia, isn't it, in many respects? I mean, how much self-awareness do sufferers have? Or does that 
depend on the degree of the severity of the it does it does i I often find when people came in first and the GP had sent them in saying, you know, I think so-and-so has dementia, the person themselves would have a sense of it. Uh, often when we have our everyday memory issues like forgetting our keys or, you know, losing our phone, we, we sort of maybe have a bit of concern, but we know actually it's just one of those things. And But often the people who get referred um, certainly have some insight early on in the mild and moderate stages. People are aware uh, that they're not quite how they used to be. But you're right, certainly as, as the condition progresses, it's the families who um, have a lot to take on board, particularly because it's a poorly resourced condition often, you know what I mean? And the, the support is hard to find, particularly in, in times of a pandemic, obviously, where it becomes even more stressful. But yes, it is. It is. And I, I think it can, it, you know, it can feel quite isolating, obviously, for families. They come into an appointment with me. We talk for half an hour, an hour, and then off they go. And, you know, I might see them once or twice a year. So it's a very different experience. But I do think, to answer your question, that, that patients themselves, uh, certainly when they come for a diagnosis with Alzheimer's, there are different types of dementia, but with Alzheimer's, often they have preserved insight. They know that something is going on. Mm. What are the, the other sort of types of dementia that you mentioned? So the one that's uh, quite common in older age is something called vascular dementia. So these are people who have mini strokes often or strokes or furring up of the arteries in the brain. And if those changes in the brain happen in areas that affect memory, for example, then they will get something called vascular dementia. And Alzheimer's and vascular dementia often coexist. But there's another dementia I talk about quite a bit in the book called frontotemporal dementia or FTD. Some people know it as frontal lobe dementia. And that often happens in younger people. The average age is around 55. And it's quite a dramatic picture because people's personality and behavior often changes frequently they're diagnosed with something else before the true diagnosis becomes known so they're thought so what would be a typical behavioral change what would you tend to see so suddenly it, aggressive or yeah being quite quite dramatic so there's something called disinhibition which means on you know you're unable to inhibit your usual behavior um so people will start swearing or taking their clothes off or make inappropriate comments having been completely unlike that before um, and as you can imagine, it's distressing to the family and friends. And often these people with FTD get diagnosed with something else. So, for example, a psychiatric condition and so on. Is that the character in the book you spoke about, Martin? That's correct, yeah. yeah. So Martin in the book was a man um, uh, from the west of Ireland. Um, I'm Irish, as you can probably tell from we can my tell. accent. It's the, <laughs> Beautiful the, the clues, Irish accent. The clues are there. <laughs> and uh, Martin was a pillar of the community. So he's from this small town and he was polite he'd walk in you know walk along the street uh, and ask ask after everyone and you know check how their sons and daughters were doing he played uh, local sports GAAs Gaelic Athletic Association so Irish Irish football and hurling um, and he was sort of known as the the you know the the bachelor that you wanted to get in the town he was a popular man very well dressed cufflinks and all the rest and over the course of a couple of years, his behavior changed dramatically. So he started gesticulating when he walked down the street. He would swear. He would try to take his clothes off. Um, and the GP heard stories from people that, you know, were worried about this man, but he wouldn't let anyone into his house. And after two years, the GP gained access to the house. And in there were two years worth of hoarded newspapers and tea bags that Martin had just kept all around the house. Uh, and somehow they managed to get him to a hospital and get him get him to us and... Uh, we did a scan and, and realized that he had uh, atrophy, which is also known as shrinkage of the frontal part of the brain. So he had FTD and his personality and behavior had changed very dramatically. To come back to what you said about Alzheimer's, FTD is very different because 
people with FTD have no insight or very, very little insight into the fact that they have changed. So he was in complete denial that he had changed in any way. Even though it's a gradually occurring thing, they still have no insight. That yeah, so the frontal lobe, the frontal part of your brain does lots of things to do with behavior and personality. And one of those things is insight. So knowing uh, that there is something wrong with you or knowing that there's something not quite right. Uh, and so if you have a problem with the frontal lobe of the brain, you can very quickly lose that insight. And that's what happened to him. So that was certainly a situation whereby for his family and friends, it was a more distressing situation than for yeah. him himself. Yeah. That's an awful situation to find yourself in, isn't it? That must be so devastating for family members to start to live with that. I think it is. What was surprising for me was for my research, um, my sort of science PhD type research during my career, I, uh, for, for three years, I, I drove around the, Ireland and, and spoke to every newly diagnosed patient with uh, FTD and a, a similar condition. And what I found was the families gained great solace from learning of the diagnosis. So it was obviously still a devastating diagnosis because there's no cure. But until that point, they thought, well, he's just being mean to me. He's being angry. We don't understand why he's changed in this way. And there is nothing you know, wonderful about imparting a diagnosis like that. But I was surprised by, as I said, the amount of solace it gave them, that they actually had an explanation of what was going on. And that gave them a little relief in how they moved forward in trying to manage what was going on. They were able to say, apart from on a bad day, when they, you know, but, but they were generally able to say, this is not about me. He's not doing this because of me. You know, this isn't personal. This is his brain has changed in such a way that he has become a different person, essentially, as far as they were concerned. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. One of the things you talk about in the book, and this probably relates to this a bit, is, is when behavior becomes... Immo- I don't know the words, immo- immoral sure. or, or lacking in morals, shall we say, sure. or there's a change of morality in perception from the person looking looking at the patient. And if there's a change of morality in that person in a negative way, you see them in a completely different light. There are certain personality characteristics and traits that seem to matter a lot to us. So if you can think of someone or your readers can think of someone in their lives who is really has has what we call moral traits. And what moral traits means uh, are, are someone who has empathy, someone who is honest, someone who is compassionate. So hopefully you can think of someone like that in your own life. You're nodding, so I'm taking yes, that as a good I, sign. Yes, I know one or two. One or two, okay. <laughs> um, so, so those traits are, are, well, some might say they're quite unusual, but ho- hopefully most of us have someone in our lives who has at least uh, one, or, one or two of those traits. And it turns out if you were to take away one of those traits from those people, so for example, if they were less honest or had less empathy, you would probably think they were a different person. That's what the research shows. But actually, if they lost one of their other personality traits or abilities, so their creativity, for example, um, that would be less of an assault on their personality. You wouldn't necessarily think they were a different person. You'd think they had changed, perhaps. But it's really those moral traits that make up the people that we think. And, and, and the frontal lobe, because it's important in managing those traits and you know directing those traits, that's why when someone has a frontal lobe injury, if they go from someone who previously had empathy and was compassionate to someone who no longer is like that, for example, Martin, who I described earlier, that's something that really strikes us. Mm. But even moral traits are man-made concepts, aren't they? Well, you know, good, you know, whether you've got empathy and sympathy and you know, good, good characteristics. These are these are 
these are morals and principles and virtues and values that we have created over the years. It's not to say they're good or bad. It's just that we put a good or bad label on them. Absolutely. And, you know, who, who beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? I think personality traits often are as well, are their consequence. So what I think is a good example of empathy and honesty isn't necessarily exactly. the case. I also think, you know, we talk about Martin obviously being um, having this diagnosis, which was devastating to, to his family, certainly. As far as he was concerned, he hadn't turned into a worse person, you know, right. and who, who gets the right to say whether he had And there or might not. be others out there who agree with him. Exactly. I'm sure there are. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we can't really talk about the... Uh, all, we, all we can do, if we're not going to bring judgment to this, is talk about the direction of change, rather like you talked about your aunt and, and how she had changed from who she was before. All we can do is talk about a direction of change then we superimpose what we think is a positive or a negative change on that. But ultimately, as you say, it's a judgment call. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got to personalise this a little bit from a personal perspective because I have a sister who has schizophrenia and she's had schizophrenia since she was, since she was 16, put my teeth in. She's now uh, late, late 50s. And she, she lives in a, a, a home um, with other residents, uh, with other sort of medical complaints. She has good days and bad days. Now, what is a good day and what is a bad day? Now, because this, this, this absolutely kills my, destroys my parents. They can be on the phone to her one day and she could be absolutely sweet as pie, as beautiful and the wonderful daughter, best daughter in the world. The next day she could be cruel and vindictive and nasty and say the foulest things, which you just wonder where she even gets the language from. And that is so difficult to come to terms with. And I, I often try and get my parents to tread a path midway between the two and say she's, she's, you brought her up to be, you know, have good morals and be a lovely daughter. And she always was up until the point, you know, she became ill. What it, What is she? You know, is she a combination of those things? Are they some of the bad traits in her personality being exacerbated by the illness? Where Where do we go with that? I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a, a rhetorical question. I'm not asking for a medical opinion necessarily, but it's it, it just... I. It's tragic, but it's fascinating at the same time because I don't know what her personality is anymore. It's very difficult to know. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I certainly, when I was um, doing some of the talks around the book, probably one of the most difficult talks I did was to a group of psychiatrists because, you know, they were saying, well, hang on a second. Our patients with schizophrenia, sometimes bipolar and some other mental health disorders, they don't fit into any easy direction of change because actually you catch them at one hour and then another hour exactly. and you've gone back and forth and this isn't a binary phenomenon we can't say that someone has changed for the better or for the worst uh, we can't easily say well this is who they are at 12 o'clock because then what do we say uh, you know when they're uh, when it's two o'clock so you're you know i'm glad you said it was, it's a rhetorical question it, it comes down really as as possibly your, your, you and your parents have found, is, is how do you handle that, that massive flux? You know, how personally Badly, do you take it? often. <laughs> Absolutely. And on a, on a bad day, even on a good day, it's, you know, you, you, your parents have put all of that work into parenting um, and they're, they're not seeing probably the daughter or certainly daughterly, you know, the life that they had anticipated. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in a sense, all we can do is feel a bit helpless and, and have the discussions. I think that's the thing. And, and you know, one of one of the things I found with writing of this is that people will come off come up after a talk and sort of quietly say this is going on with my daughter this is and I don't have any easy answers but I, I hope that at least us having these kind of honest conversations goes beyond the medical model because most of what you hear about on TV is about the chemistry of mental health disorders or the the funding for example quite rightly or the biology of dementia, all of that's incredibly important. But a lot of stories get lost when we focus on those things alone. Hmm. 
talk about the personal stories, the, the, the people who have saved up over the years. And we, we just forget, we forget about them. Well, they forget about the personal stories. When you say it's the stories that are, are crucial, it's the sufferer's story. Exactly. Um, so In the context of the lives and the, the lives of their families and the, their friends. Exactly. And I think having been on the sort of doctor side and on the reporting side, you know, given that I report for various newspapers and so on, sometimes you just want a story that's quickly told, articulate. You can get your paragraphs, you know, in a, in a, in a few minutes and a 30 minute, minute interview. And these stories that we're talking about, your sister's story, your parents' story, are, are obviously more complex and they require more time and more nuance and they're it's quite terrifying when you're when you're a journalist or a reporter or a writer to do justice to those stories which I think people sometimes shy away from them um, too easily one of the issues as well is that when we look for stories from the mental health sphere or you know any sphere you tend to go to the spokespeople who have done all the interviews before. So you go to a major charity, they say, we have five people on tap, they're wonderful, they're articulate, and they are. Um, and I've spoken to those people and they've given me insights that very few others would. But what about the people who are a little bit more scared to step forward and tell their stories, whose stories don't fit the template of the condition that we're supposed to be raising funds for? You know, how often do we hear stories from someone like your sister, for example, or your parents? Not frequently enough, I would mm, venture. Mm, mm. It's fascinating. You talk about personalities, another section in your book, and obviously we've spoken about schizophrenia as, as one and change, the, the other form of uh, dementia, which I've forgotten what it's called already, <laughs> the FTD. But there's also other types of personality disorders as well, aren't there? Do you just want to touch on some of those that you spoke about in the book? So one of the personality disorders that really came to fame, I have to say, in the 70s, 80s and 90s was multiple personality disorder. And you might remember that these sort of cases if you watched Oprah or Geraldo or Sally Jesse Jones was that her name any of those American chat shows and they would bring someone on who would over the course of a five minute interview turn into seven different characters you know at one point they were someone manning a spacecraft and the next moment they were uh, as far as they perceived it a celebrity for example and the next thing they were a doctor and there was quite a bit of exploitation going on here you could imagine because it was clear that some of these people had significant mental health issues the reason it really also reached mass media is there was several court cases where people who were subsequently convicted of murder or manslaughter said that they hadn't actually committed a crime. They had multiple personality disorder and it was one of their other personalities. Yeah, this was the Kenneth Bianchi? Exactly. One of the famous cases. Yeah, so yeah. That, that was the case of the Hillside Strangler that I cover in the book. Uh, and he said... Uh, and in fact, a psych psychiatrist corroborated that he had several personalities and it was another personality who had killed all of these women in California. And so I have some transcripts in the book about, you know, his testimony and so on and the psychiatrist who took his diagnosis on board. And that's not to say there weren't people with, you know, significant mental health issues who weren't using this diagnosis in the way Ken, uh, uh, Kenneth Bianchi was. It, turned out uh, that all was not as it appeared when it came to his story, as you probably know if you've, you've read that, that book. But multiple personality disorder was unfortunately sort of seen as fashionable on some shows and, and that neglected the real mental health issues that underlay the disorder. Over time, that diagnosis has been revisited. So it now exists in something called DID, which is Dissociative Identity Disorder. That's a, psych a psychiatric classification. And it's realized that those experiences that people had were real. But what was going on really was rather than people having lots of different identities, it's more likely that people's identities are fractured in some way. And what you really need to do is to bring those identity facets together rather than 
really uh, what the TV shows were sometimes doing, which was encouraging the different personalities. Can't come to in develop. number two personality. Let me talk to number three personality, exactly. and then you feel compelled as a patient to to bring that alleged personality forth. There was a there existence. was several court cases, and again, I've got some transcripts in yeah. there about how the judge would swear in the different personalities separately, Bizarre. Um, including animal personalities, for example. Um, so it was really encouraged. It's a form of hypnosis, isn't it? Yeah, it was really encouraged. There's no there's no denial. I mean, those those criminal cases are different because people were clearly malingering or using the condition to get off. Um, but there are clearly people who, who who feel that their identity is not a single identity as such. Um, but the problem was really when it was in, encouraged in a way that was wasn't helpful or meaningful to them. Yeah, but to use it as a as a, a criminal defence when you know whether it's one personality or multiple personalities have committed heinous multiple murders shouldn't really come into play. No, and and thankfully the truth finally came out for some of the cases that I've. Is that used about. as a legal defence anymore? Or can it? it? Anything can be used as a legal defence. Oh, well, it succeed as a legal <laughs> yeah. defence, I should say. Um, I think it would be much more much more difficult now. And um, yeah. this was at the time of false memory syndrome as well, right. uh, where various therapists encouraged the idea uh, that people had, for example, been abused by yes. their families and that those memories were, were encouraged out. Um, Is that now totally discredited as a... It, it's discredited as a diagnosis. Of course, it's recognised that, you know, one can suppress one's memories and, you know, you have to delve deep in sometimes and to do that through therapy is useful. Um, but some of these cases, you know, were bringing out memories of mass satanic rituals, for example. Oh, wow. Um, and kids were taken away from their parents and and people, you know, supposed perpetrators, alleged perpetrators were put in prison for years and mm. so on until it was realized that this diagnosis was really, um, really being abused, really. It was a, it was a, not an experience that people had. But you talk about memory in this in this section of the book uh, and looking back and you say when we remember things, we're not necessarily remembering the incident. We're, we're, we're remembering the memory of that incident or something that brings that memory to the fore, which is fascinating because it's, it's layered memory, isn't it, with other things that have happened in the interceding period? Yeah, so if you remember or whoever's listening remembers their first kiss, for example... You're not willing to disclose yours. Or <laughs> it's my wife, of course. <laughs> of course. I feel, I feel, listeners, that might not be accurate. <laughs> but who knows? So let's ask, let's take you out of the uh, spotlight for the moment. But if we ask listeners to think about their first kiss, which hopefully is a happy memory, and, you know, I talk about maybe you're listening to the song Come On Eileen or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, no, I remember and, that. Yeah. <laughs> and you're having perhaps a, an illegal drink and you have your first kiss and you're excited and you go home and you go, oh, I wonder, will my parents be able to tell that I you know, had my first kiss? When you remember back, uh, let's say a year or two years, that first kiss, what you've done is you're actually layering memories on top of it and layering your experiences and perceptions. So that memory is now filled in with your understanding of what that first kiss meant to you or what you now think of that musical track or other experiences that have happened since then. And every time you remember something, we used to think, well, it's just like playing a video on a loop. That's all it is, uh, like a gif that keeps on going. Uh, but in fact, it isn't really that. We're actually reconstructing the memory. So you're, it's like you're taking an old library book out of the library and you're dusting it off and you're adding some new pages in because there's extra stuff. And then you're scribbling some notes because you want to make note that something has happened since then. So rather than a video playing on a loop, it's more like a construction and reconstruction and reconstruction which is a little terrifying in a sense, because that means your memory of your first kiss is not exactly what happened, even though if you and I are absolutely convinced that we remember it the way it happened. That's not necessarily a bad thing either, because it means that you develop as a person and you bring your new experiences and perceptions to every memory that you reconstruct with time. Mm. As you said in the book, memories, are, are, is it layers of protein or something on the 
just explain what because there's is a physical change the memory. There as are well, physical as, changes. Yeah. yeah. Now some of these um, experiments worked wonderfully in animals, and it's uh, you know when I say animals, I mean rats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the the work on on this phenomenon called reconsolidation is is less clear in humans. Let's say even in the last two years or so. Um, but yes, the idea is that when we reconstruct memories, there's a process going on with the proteins in our brain, and every time you remember a memory, so you take it out of that library, the proteins do their thing all over again. So in a way, there's no way the exact same process can be happening with each each thing. And, and that's why also, you know, we've talked about false memories a little bit, but the false memory experiments in the last couple of years have built on that. So there's an idea that I can actually implant a false memory into your brain, which I'm not going to do at this precise moment. Sort of Darren Brown style. Darren Brown style. Yeah. Uh, and this started with some experiments by Elizabeth Loftus and some of her colleagues. She's a very famous psychologist called the Lost in the Shopping Mall um, experiment, I think. And, and what they did was they got a bunch of people who'd never been lost in a shopping mall as kids. And she managed through the powers of suggestion to convince them that they had been lost in a shopping mall. And at the follow-up appointment, they were able to impart this entire story, how they'd been lost in a shopping mall and the loudspeaker had to go on and a volunteer, you know, all, all the usual, if I asked you to put together a story of how you were lost in a shopping mall. So I think, you know, that the idea that our memories are uh, absolutely authentic and not susceptible to change is, you know, obviously very false now. And that's where those false memory experiments come in. And I talk about another set of recent experiments in the book whereby people were convinced that they had actually attacked police officers and were able to construct a story that they had done that. As well as you've probably heard of false confessions where people are absolutely um, convinced that they have committed a crime even though they haven't. And without real duress, they actually confess to, to committing a crime. Through subtle questioning or exactly. interrogation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you could argue that it is absolutely duress, but in terms of the traditional, yeah, yeah, you, know, you must tell duress. us. Yeah, yeah. It, it's certainly not that. Yeah. But there are it's other ways of suggestions, yeah. But you also talk about uh, false memory when there's a belief that what's happened in the past has actually happened through heightened emotion. You give examples, I think, of Hillary Clinton. Uh, was it in a, in a war zone or something? Or was another politi American politician swearing blind he was in some heightened war zone or something? And it never actually happened at all. Exactly. So it turns out when we're emotional, we remember things quite differently. There's a couple of examples in the book. One is of Hillary Clinton, uh, which is an incredible story to believe whether you're a fan or not of Hillary Clinton. It doesn't do her any favours <laughs> yeah. politically, does it, really? <laughs> no, but it turns out that doesn't necessarily yeah. matter when it comes to elections. Um, so what happened to Hillary Clinton was uh, she told this story about how she'd been in a war zone. She was coming off a plane um, and... Uh, she came under fire. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. And later footage emerged of her coming off a plane, indeed, coming down the steps with her daughter, Chelsea, I think, um, and meeting the lineup that always, you know, forms to meet dignitaries and calmly signing signing um, autographs, I suppose, and reading a poem. And it was all, you know, a really lovely situation. And there was no, you know, there was no rocket fire whatsoever. So where on earth does that come from? And afterwards, she said, you know, I misspoke, I misremembered and so on. And it's important to say this happens on both sides of the political yeah, yeah, divide. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt I'm about that. I'm not making that. political points yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's another famous example I write in the book about a journalist called Brian Williams, who also said he came under attack during one of his missions. Um, and the truth is, you know, many of the people who talk about this have come under fire at some point in some way, even if even distantly so. Um, during their lifetimes. And what happens is it looks like they conflate memories. And our memory systems are quite 
complex, of course. And we often think about a structure called a hippocampus, which is where we store our memories, where we encode them. So we bring them in and then we store them and we retrieve them. It's a pretty important part of the brain uh, called a hippocampus. But there's also a bit called the amygdala. And the amygdala does all our emotions, part of a limbic system, which does our emotions. And it turns out that when we're in an emotional situation, we actually store our memories quite differently. So as you've said, if our emotions are heightened, the memory as we put it into our system, is wrapped up in a slightly different way. And often it's not the accuracy of the memory that actually takes precedence anymore. It's perhaps the fear associated with it. And this is quite a useful response, creating a memory that's not necessarily accurate, because it means if you come across that situation in future, the memory is good enough that you'll go, oh, i got to get out of here. You know, it doesn't really matter. Do you remember things correctly? You just say to yourself, this happened to me before. It was definitely a bad thing. I need to get out. So it's your emotional response as opposed to the detail behind that response. It's an evolutionary yeah. thing, it's thought. So there was an example uh, that I spoke to a researcher for the book and she talks about, look, if you go to a forest, right, and you see a scary wolf-like creature, you, as you say in Ireland, I presume you do here in Britain as well, you leg it, so you, or peg it. I can it. think of other yeah. phrases as well. <laughs> Which basically means you get <laughs> yes, out really yeah. quickly. Now, if you go back the following year to the same forest and you see a wolf-like creature, it might not exactly be the same, but it looks, you remember, you remember, okay, it looks kind of the same, same part of the forest. Your memory is good enough to go, I remember that wolf, kind of, not accurately, but enough. And then you leg it. And that is a very useful evolutionary response. So actually, it's not really your amygdala has kicked in and told you the emotional response is what's important here and you get out. So you can see how our brain systems potentially for evolutionary purposes are designed not always to really speak to the authenticity of the memory, but instead how important that memory might be for our for our future action. So I think a generous interpretation of politicians who misremember things is that it is their memory circuitry. As I talk about uh, in the book, Brian Williams, however, profited hugely from his memory of coming under fire uh, by war, uh, by rocket propelled grenades, as I talk about in the book, uh, because, of course, he was seen as a hero and he went on chat shows and he won all of these medals and so on. Um, so you could argue, hang on, what, what's at stake when we misremember? So it's never quite as simple as just uh, thinking inside the brain. It's what happens outside of it as well. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I can see why you, why you got into this. <laughs> and you're still fascinated by it, obviously. You talk about consciousness as well and sleep and disturbed sleep patterns and weird things that go on in our, in our dreaming state. I don't want to go into that in great detail, but very many weird things happen in our, in our sleep state. And you talk about getting physical when i mean getting physical you know la <laughs> not that sort of physicality <laughs> this is awkward just so but, you know. <laughs> but there are stories in the book of people getting up in in the middle of the night otherwise very rational people getting in the car driving over to their mother-in-laws and brutally murdering them and other members of the family how on earth does that happen well with uh Oh, thankfully, not terrifying frequency, not often, but yeah, yeah uh, but it does happen. Yeah, I speak about Ken Parks, who's a Canadian man who did exactly that. So he drove across uh, the city to kill his parents-in-law, and uh, you know, no, we were the old mother-in-law jokes. That's a, yeah. taking it a step too far. Yeah, <laughs> and it it certainly was. Um, and I talk about the outcome of his court case, which may or may not be surprising to you. But what happens in we know in sleepwalking is is something. Uh, interesting in terms of who we become when we sleep and, and when we sleepwalk. So when we dream or when we fall asleep, all of us, regardless of sleepwalking or not, um, part of the brain continues to function in a way. It's the brainstem. Uh, and that's the thing that helps us to breathe and you know keep our heart rate going and so on. 
but the top of the brain, um, the kind of more refined part of the brain, let's say, uh, really dials down during our sleep. And that's the bit that does our rational thinking and our planning, our judgment, our abstract thinking and so on. And that means we can just go to sleep and we can dream and our dreams can make absolutely no sense because we're not using the very evolved, uh, intelligent part of our brain. But in things like sleepwalking, you can get a miswiring, I suppose, or a misfiring of that response so that people continue to be able to have motor activity. In other words, they can continue to walk even though they're in a deep state of sleep otherwise. You can actually see this in animals. So the blue, uh, there's a dolphin actually, I think it's several several other animals um, that are half awake, half asleep. Uh, even for example, uh, during hibernation or when they're migrating through the air. So if you do a brain scan of, of some dolphins, they're half awake, so half the brain is actually awake and half of it has sleep activity. Um, so you can see it's useful uh, to keep aware of your surroundings. Uh, but yes, when you get miswiring and misfiring, that's, uh, you know, things things can happen. Thankfully, not not very frequently. I have something called sleep paralysis, which I don't know if you've heard of. I've read an article yes. about it for Granta. Have you ever had it yourself? I have other weird sleep things. I've ended up kicking my wife in the middle of the night and I've never, never strangled her. I think you've got some examples of people getting violent with their partners in bed but i have given her a good kick, <laughs> kick in bed i think because i think the dream was uh, i was playing football at the time oh, so I, I wasn't actually attacking her <laughs> i think i was kicking a ball but she was she was none too pleased i would imagine she wasn't that impressed <laughs> she was she wasn't impressed but I, I do have regular nightmares yes and i've i can't attribute that to anything particularly in my waking life i, I have no idea what that's about but i have many night, nightmares you know, on a regular basis well, one of the theories that I find quite reassuring about, uh, you know, our dreams at night and nightmares even is that it allows us to work out our thinking so that we don't have to do it during the day. We sort of combat our fears at night, which is, you know, somewhat reassuring, I suppose. Um, but as I said, you know, I think when we're dreaming, we don't have our usual, it, a dream is like a movie really, isn't it? And, and what happens in our brains is essentially the director takes time out, the director being the frontal lobe and the rational, logical part of your brain. Uh, and and so your the rest of your brain can really just do its own thing. Sleep paralysis is very common. That's the thing I have. So about twenty percent of your listeners will have had sleep paralysis on at least one occasion. Often happens after a few drinks, or you're really tired, or when you do shift work, which I did as a junior doctor. Uh, and what happens is you begin to wake up. Now you are normally all of us are paralysed during our sleep in terms of our arms and legs, which is really useful because when you have those dreams of playing football, most of the time you don't lash out. But in sleep paralysis, what happens is even though you're becoming conscious and you're waking up, um, your arms or legs haven't started their waking up process. So you get, again, a disconnect. And for, we don't really know how long it is. It could just be a split second, but it feels like forever. You actually feel, oh my God, I cannot move. This is terrifying. You want to scream, you can't scream. I do have that when my wife is trying to wake me up. And I'm fully aware that she's trying to wake me up and she's pushing my shoulders and shaking my head. Gently, I think, yeah. and I cannot. I'm thinking, please wake up, please wake up, and I can't move my body. And I think I'm going to die if I don't wake up. It's, it's awful, a terrible feeling. Awful, and some people get hallucinations and they see things attacking them and so on. And um, I actually had a couple of patients come in to me. I mean, it, when I when I had sleep paralysis as a kid, a few members of my family have it because it can be familial. I used to look up books all the time and just say, what is this? And I couldn't find anything, even as a medical student. And now, of course, it's a well-known thing. And I ended up working on a unit where the guy was like a world specialist in sleep paralysis. And I thought, well, wait till I tell you my so story. Is, is there a cure? Is there, there a way to... There, there are ways to... Uh, have, you, have you found anything that helps you a little? Or I've, I confess I've never really looked into it, but yeah. I, I just 
just have it and just, just get on with it. You yeah. just hope your wife, you know, slaps you out. <laughs> um, so some of the things that are useful and I find personally useful, but but certainly are useful, we know from a mechanism point of view is is something that makes it worse is sleeping on your back. So if it's possible to sleep on your side, that makes a big difference. A room being very warm, if it's possible to, you know, not have the radiator a full blast. You never have it on, yeah. Okay. Um, alcohol. I feel like I'm getting a private therapy <laughs> session here. <but. laughs> Alcohol is the thing, but, you know, yeah. most people don't want to give that up. Yeah. And I, I certainly wouldn't suggest it. I mean, there is, you know, some people will say, well, none of that is helpful. Um, some people, as they're getting it, they try to sort of um, pinch their, their finger or, you know, sort of rub their, their thumb and their index finger or pinch themselves or just wriggle one little part, your toe or your finger. And often that's sort of felt to sort of stimulate your brain, the motor cortex of your brain to get going. Having said that, some people just don't find that stuff. There are various tablets that people prescribe, but whether they're useful or actually probably they make you feel worse rather than yeah. better, potentially. It does tend to go away as you get older. So actually mine oh. has gone away, I have to say. <laughs> so I'm very relieved about that. Yeah, I, I can't say I get it regularly, but I, well, when I get it, it's the most unpleasant experience and it's, it, it shakes you up for a little while after after you get up. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. No, no, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not a nice experience. On the other hand, my, my wife will sit up in the middle of the night and and swear blind you know there's someone at the end of the bed there's something here there's someone in the room go back to sleep <laughs> stop fussing yes. <laughs> well i'm mindful of the uh, the time and taking up too much of your time and i'm also mindful of the weather closing in we, we we knew we'd have a good window of opportunity but roughly between 11 and 12 and it, it's very much looking that way so I'm very grateful. It's, it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, and it, it looks at all the uh, from a non-medical point of view and i'm not a medic at all but we've all got these experiences in our life, haven't we? All the things I've spoken of. I'm not the only one who's got a sister who's mentally ill. I'm not the only one that, you know, who's got these sleep disorders. We've got an aunt with Alzheimer's or whatever. We've all got that in our family. And this book presents a new, interesting way of looking at people as people, not as the illness. And far too often we tend to do that, don't we? And judge people for, for their illness. Yeah, it's quite easy. I think we're uncomfortable with some of the questions around the brain and mind. So it, it's... Uh yeah, it's easy. And I think, you know, as a, as a medic, um, you know, we're guilty of that. We're guilty of that, partly because we have to look at what people can't do rather than what they can do to make our diagnosis. But I think we can certainly do better. And I hope I hope by telling these stories, people identify uh, identify um, through their, their own experience and the experiences of their loved ones as well. Well, it's a wonderful book. Uh, it's called Lost and Found, Why Losing Our Memories Doesn't Mean Losing Ourselves. I thoroughly recommend it. It was a, a, a very Big selling book, wasn't it, of, it, of its type? Very successful. Yeah, it did okay, I think. It did yeah. okay. <laughs> well, so much so, you've yeah. been asked to write another book. I think yeah. uh, you, you were auctioned, one at an auction, weren't you? I know, it makes it sound very glamorous. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it was probably three people just on a phone call and one said, well, oh, I'll no, take this no, book. You're doing yourself down. You've got a, a nice nice contract, I think, to uh, to write your next book. Called the, is it called The Diagnosis Cure? It's called The Diagnosis Cure, yeah. yeah. So, What's that going to be about? So... It turns out diagnosis is deeply flawed uh, and taking this time out now allows me, me to be quite <laughs> <laughs> quite critical. Um, so I just started hearing about how various diagnoses came about. You know, we, we put so much value, don't we? You go into the doctor and the doctor says, you have this. And that's quite useful because maybe you can get benefits or you can explain your illness or you can find people with similar experiences. But I started to look at diagnoses and think, hang on, how solid are these things after all? Some of them are. Lung cancer is lung cancer. Parkinson's is Parkinson's. Something like, for example, homosexuality was a psychiatric diagnosis until 1973. And I mean, that just, you know, that blew my mind. I started reading a book by a guy called Jonathan Metzl about schizophrenia. And schizophrenia, 
amazingly, was a diagnosis of young, docile, lovesick white women in the 1950s. And then the black civil rights movement came along and increasingly black men were diagnosed with schizophrenia instead. And the advertisements, uh, and, and they're in his book for uh, the medications change. So they went from beautiful pictures of these young, lovesick, docile white women, um, often in housekeeping magazines, to an advertisement that showed a black man with his fist clenched, raised in the air, with a burning building behind him. And schizophrenia changed as a diagnosis. The criteria changed. The when was this book changed. written? So this book is recent, but um, the, the, the actual change the, in the diagnosis happened during yes. the civil rights right. uh, movement in particular. Now, you know, I'm not arguing about who had what mental health disorder in all of these, these hospitals and asylums and so on. But what it did make me realize is like, how can something change so dramatically? How can a diagnosis that to us seems so fixed and obvious and has criteria change so dramatically over the course of a few years? So what I do in the book really is I talk about things like homosexuality, how it was a diagnosis, how it met its downfall as a diagnosis. I look at schizophrenia and I also look in, in today's contemporary society. So, for example, police brutality is a thing we're talking about a lot. Um, parts of America are burning this morning as, as, as okay. uh, once again. Um, and it turns out that some of the particularly men who are dying at the hands of police in some of these cities are being retrospectively uh, diagnosed with something called excited delirium, uh, which is now a condition where it is said that their adrenaline went up and that was the reason for their death rather than actually having a knee right. on their neck. For so example. adrenaline went up as they're being harassed violently by three, three to seven police officers, armed officers. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that, uh, so we've got to create a syndrome for these guys to give, give uh, the, the officers an excuse to hang their, their behaviour on. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's a, it's a difficult line because obviously, you know, policing is difficult and I'm all I'm very aware that. of that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. what I also worry about is is how is the medical establishing uh, establishment providing diagnoses where responsibility can completely be abdicated. So um, Britain is, is very different in terms of how it polices and so on. But I have ended up for this book going back, uh, for example, to Birmingham, where there were riots in the 80s, as there were in many other parts of the UK, um, and to some parts of London, and looking at the diagnoses that were sanctioned here as well for people who took part in, in riots. And they were sort of told they had some sort of psychiatric condition. Um, and uh, the legacy left by a lifetime of drugs has been huge. So these diagnoses primarily for legal purposes or legal defence purposes or to... to to get someone swinging, to put it any other way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the places I visited in Birmingham, Handsworth, is yes. where a lot of the riots were. And the police station there, I was, I was brought to see a building next to the police station that was at one time an asylum and during the riots was still functioning as a psychiatric hospital. Um, now it's being used for administrative purposes, but it was a very Dickensian building with green rolling fields in front of it and so on. And what would happen is you would go into the police station having been arrested during the riots and there was a corridor that linked the police station to the asylum. So you would get brought through the corridor and into the asylum you would go and how long you stayed there for was anyone's best guess. So there were political reasons, there were policing reasons, um, often there are racial undertones and overtones to these diagnoses. Um, and that's, you know, I also have gone out to some Greek refugee camps and looked at diagnoses and how they're applied there. 
Um, again, so there's all sorts of moral, political. So they feel social, socially led rather than uh, ethically, medically led diagnoses. Exactly. If I can put it that way. Yeah, I think there's you know diagnoses are useful as I said because they allow us to understand our, when we're unwell. But there are more diagnoses than I'd realise that have political, imperial, racial, social yeah. constructs. That's a, fa- it's a fascinating book. It sounds. When, when is that due to? Obviously, it's been delayed slightly. It's been delayed, COVID. but we're looking at next year. Good, <laughs> yeah. good. Because I did read 2020, but uh, next year. Fantastic. And uh, we, we very much look forward to that. Okay, so we're at the point in our conversation. Hope you've remembered when I ask <laughs> I ask all my guests, this is a London-based podcast, to mention one or two places in London that are particularly personal to them, that have some great significance to them, whether it's a walk, a pub, a museum, a cafe or something like that. Have you got one or two places you can mention? Well, I've got one that I discovered by accident, actually. Um, and you come out of the Museum of London and you head towards St. Paul's Station or St. Paul's. Um, and then there's a little gateway and you go through the gravel and you're like, what's this? This is really nice. There's a fishing pond and there's some benches and it's called Postman's Park. Um, it's absolutely one of my favourite places in London, partly because I, it's one of those hidden wonders and I, I discovered it completely by accident. Um, and in it is a what's called a memorial uh, to self-sacrifice and there's these incredible um, ceramic tiles uh, with little stories of people, particularly in the early 1900s, who, you know, there was some incredible... Uh, self-sacrifice story associated with them Um, and you might remember there was a film called Closer and there's a character in that called Alice Ayres I'll I'll leave it at that because you should watch the very start of that movie and ideally the rest of it as well Um, and they're beautiful stories uh, uh, and devastating poignant stories about young kids who saved a drowning brother for example from um, a lake somewhere in London or saved someone from a fire at a pantomime and so on and they're you know it's it might seem strange that I'm talking about these devastating stories as one of my favourite parts of London, but it really does remind you of the capacity humans have for kindness um, and for decency and for heroism, um, which, you know, particularly I think in troubled times in a global pandemic, you can you can forget some of the, the very basic tenants that, that humans have. We're, at the moment, we're talking about all the political fallout of the pandemic and all the bad things that are happening. But there is all we inherent, hear. All we hear. there is inherent good in people. Thank God, you for, are, thank God you said that. Yeah, there is inherent good in people, and if you go to Postman's Park, which is just near St Paul's, uh, you will see that there is inherent good in people, and always has been. It, I have to say, it has been mentioned once before by another guest on the podcast, and I'm embarrassed to say, having been lived in London all my life, I've never yet got round to to going there. I, it's on my short list of places to go because I saw it in the film it's been mentioned to me I've, I've read about it. it it looks an amazing place so I will certainly check that out and I recommend all our listeners go and do likewise so how can people get in touch with you how can they find out more about you and where can they get the book from so I'm on Twitter because I was told to join Twitter um, yeah. and uh, it's good and bad but it's it's good for people <laughs> getting in touch if they want yes. to so it's at Jules underscore Montague I think um, the book is available everywhere. I, I should be careful about where I um, recommend because uh, some some places have uh, well some places have more to recommend them than others. But I'm a big fan of independent books bookstores. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's pretty much well, available actually, everywhere. I... And it's it's it you know I was very lucky because actually it was published around around the world. And if you're if you speak Dutch or Russian or Italian, I saw I it's been translated into a number of languages. Yeah. So it's obviously doing very well. well. It's very exciting to look at a Russian. Uh, edition and not be able to read a single uh, you read word of it. Cyrillic, whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but it is. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Okay, Jules, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you ever so much for sparing your time and uh, keep up your excellent work and keep being positive because that's what we need in in today's miserable 
time we're living in at the moment. Thank you ever so much. <laughs> Thank you. And here's some positive times ahead. Thank you. Thank you. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you. And the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you will continue to support what we're doing here and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.